Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Behind the Stumps by Russell Kirk And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. 1 Chronicles 21.1 Potawatomi County, shorn of its protecting forests 70 years ago, ever since has sprawled like Samson, undone by Delilah, naked, impotent, grudgingly servile. Amid the fields of rotted stumps, potatoes and beans grow, and half the inhabited houses still are log cabins thrown up by the lumbermen who followed the trappers into this land. In Potawatomi there has been no money worth mentioning since the timber was cut, but here and there people cling to the straggling farms or make shift in the crumbling villages. An elusive beauty drifts over this country sprinkled with little lakes, Stretches of second-growth woods and cedar swamps, gravelly upland ridges that are gnawed by every rain now that their cover is gone. As if a curse had been pronounced upon these folk and their houses and their crops in reprisal for their violation of nature, everything in Potawatomi is melting away. Of the children who stick obstinately to this stump country, some are grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the men who swept off the forest. Others are flotsam, cast upon these sandy miles from the torrent of modern life, thrown out of the eddy upon the soggy bank to lie inert and ignored. Worn farmers of a conservative cast of mind, pinched, tenacious, inured to monotony, fond of the bottle on Saturday nights. Eccentrics of several sorts, a silent half-breed crew of Negro and Indian dispersed in cabins and sun-stricken tar-paper shanties along the back roads, remote from the county seat and the lesser hamlets that conduct the languid commerce of Potawatomi. These are the Potawatomi people. Decent roads have come only lately. Even television is too costly for many of these folks. The very hand of government is nerveless in this poverty of soil and spirit. Yet not wholly palsied, the grip of the state for all that. Tax assessments necessarily are modest in Potawatomi, but there are roads to be maintained, poaching of deer and trout to be repressed, public relief to be doled out. There exists a sheriff intimate with the local tone at the county seat, also a judge of probate, and the county supervisors of farmers and tradesmen without inclination to alter the nature of things in Potawatomi. So far, government is in the shadow of a shade, but now and again the state administration and the federal administration gingerly poke about in the mud and brush of the stumpland. A special rural census had to be compiled. Down in the capital, a plan had been drawn up concerning commodity price levels and potential crop yields and tabulated prices. Acres of corn were to be counted and pigs and people. Enumerators went out to every spreading wheat farm, to every five-acre tomato patch, and Potawatomi County was not forgotten. Always against the government, Potawatomi, against the administration that ordained this special census most vehemently. This new survey, Potawatomi declared, 
meant more blank forms, more trips to the county seat, higher taxation, and intolerable prying into every man's household, which last none resent more due than the rural poor. So the regional office of the special census began to encounter difficulties in Potawatomi. Doors were shut in the faces of certified enumerators, despite threats of warrants and writs. The evasive response was common, violent reaction not inconceivable. Reports particularly unsettling were received from the district of Bear City, a decayed village of 200 inhabitants. Despite his pressing need for the stipend attached to the office, the temporary agent there resigned in distress at a growing unpopularity. A woman who took his place was ignored by half the farmers she endeavored to interview. Put out, the regional office dispatched to Bear City a special interviewer, Cribben. They let him have a car and a stack of forms and rather a stiff letter of introduction to the postmaster in that town, and off he drove northward. Being that sort of man, Cribben took his revolver with him. Once he had been a bank messenger, and he often told his associates, the other messengers carried their guns at the bottom of their briefcases so there'd be no chance of having to pull them out if there was a stick-up. But I kept my thirty-eight handy. I was willing to have it out with the boys. Tall, forty, stiff as a stick, this cribbin, walking with chin up, chest out, joints rigid, in a sort of nervous defiance of humanity. He looked insufferable. He was insufferable. Next to a jocular man, an insufferable man is best suited for the responsibilities that are a special interviewer's. Close-clipped black hair set off a strong head, well-proportioned, but the mouth was petulant, and the eyes were ignorantly challenging, and the chin was set in lines of pomposity. In conversation, Cribben had a way of sucking in his cheeks, with an affectation of whimsical deliberation, for Cribben had long told himself that he was admirably funny when he chose to be, especially with women. Years before, his wife had divorced him in Reno. Since, somewhat to her bewilderment, she had been able to think of no precise ground which would admit of obtaining a divorce in her own state. He lived chastely, honestly, soberly, quite solitary. He laughed dutifully at other men's jokes. He would go out of his way to write a friendly letter of recommendation, but somehow no one ever asked him out or looked him up. A failure in everything was Cribben. Ex-engineer, ex-chief clerk, ex-artillery captain, ex-foundry partner. He told himself he had been completely reliable in every little particular, which was true, and he told himself he had failed because of his immaculate honesty in a mob of rogues, which was false. He had failed because he was precise. Corporal, about the morning report, I see you used a razor to clean up the ink blot instead of correction fluid. Watch that, Corporal. We'll use correction fluid. Understand? This is the sort of thing the precise Cribben would say, if with a smile, then the wrong kind of smile, and he would compliment himself on his urbanity. Cribben did not spare himself. No man ever was more methodical, more painstaking, reliable in every little particular, yes, but so devoted to these particulars the generalities went to pot. Subordinates resigned and read the help-wanted columns rather than submit to another week of such accuracy. Superiors found him hopelessly behind in his work, 
austerely plodding through tidy inconsequentialities. Truly, Cribben was intolerable. He knew the mass of men to be consistently inaccurate and often dishonest. Quite right, of course. Sensible men nod and shrug. Cribben nagged. His foundry went to pieces because he fretted about missing wrenches and screwdrivers. He thought his workmen stole them. They did, but Cribben would never confess that moderate pilferage was an item of fixed overhead. In Cribben's pernacity, there would have been something noble, had he loved precision for the sake of truth, but he regarded truth only as an attribute of precision. So down to that sink of broken men, petty governmental service spun Cribben in the vortex of failure. Having arrived at the abyss, which in this instance was a temporary junior clerkship, Cribben commenced to rise in a small way. In this humorless precision, the assistant chief of the regional office discerned the very incarnation of the second-best type of public functionary, and so set him to compelling the reluctant to complete interminable forms. Cribben became a special investigator, with every increase of salary authorized by statute. To entrust him with supervisory duties proved inadvisable, yet within his sphere Cribben was incomparable. It was Cribben's apotheosis. Never had he liked work so well, and only a passion to reorganize the regional office upon a more precise model clouded his contentment. With the majesty of government at his back, the auteur of a censor in his mien as he queried the subject of a survey or interrogated the petitioner for a grant, a man like Cribben never dreamed of more than this, for Cribben was quite devoid of imagination. And Cribben drove north to Bear City. False-fronted dry-goods shops and grocery stores and saloons built lavishly of second-grade white pine, when pine was cheap and seemingly inexhaustible, are strung along the broad, graveled road. This is Bear City. They are like discolored teeth in an old man's mouth, these buildings, for they stand between grass-grown gaps where casual flames have had their way with abandoned structures. One of these shops with the usual high, old-fashioned windows and siding a watery white is also the post office. On Saturday afternoons in little places like this, post offices generally close, but on this Saturday afternoon, in Bear City, so Cribben noted as he parked his automobile, not only the dry goods half of the shop, but the post office too was open for business. This was tidy and efficient, Cribben reflected striding through the door. It predisposed him to amiability. Afternoon, said Cribben to the postmaster. I'm J.K. Cribben from the regional office. Read this, please. He presented his letter of introduction. Mr. Matt Heddle, postmaster, Bear City, was behind the wrought iron grill of the old post office counter, a relic of earlier days and more southerly towns. And his shy wife, Jessie, was opposite at the shop counter. They were not lacking in the dignity that comes from honorable posts long held in small places. Mr. Heddle, with his crown of thick white hair and his august slouch, his good black suit, and his deep slow voice, made a rural postmaster for one to be proud of. Why, I wish you luck, Mr. Cribben, Matt Heddle said with concern, reading the letter of introduction. 
Mr. Heddle desired to be postmaster for the rest of his life. I'll do anything I can. I'm sorry about the fuss the other census man had. His own damn fault, Cribben said, largely. Don't give a grouch a chance to make a fuss. That's my way. Take none of their lip. I've handed people quite a while. Shoot out your questions. Stare them down. I won't have much trouble here. He didn't. Whatever Cribben's shortcomings, he was neither coward nor laggard. Only six or seven hours a day he spent in the tourist room he had rented, and by the time six days had passed, he had seen and conquered almost all the obdurate farmers around Bear City. Their sheds and their silos, their sheep and their steers, their hired men and their bashful daughters, the rooms in their houses and the privies behind them, all were properly observed and recorded in forms and check sheets. What Cribben could not see with his own eyes, he bullied out adequately enough from the uneasy man he cornered and glowered upon. He was big. He was gruff. He was pedantically insistent. He was worth what salary the regional office paid. He never took no for an answer or don't know, either. He made himself detested in Bear City more quickly than ever had a man before. And he paid back his condemners in condescending scorn. His success was the product, in part, of his comparative restraint, for he seemed to those he confronted to be holding himself precariously in check, on the verge of tumbling into some tremendous passion, like a dizzy man teetering on a log across a stream in spate. He was cruelly cold, always, never fierce, and yet hanging by a worn rope. What brute would have had the callousness or the temerity to thrust this man over the brink? It was safer to answer his questions and endure his prying. Over the rutted trails of Potawatomi County in muddy spring, he drove his official automobile, finding out every shack and hut, every Indian squatter, every forlorn old couple back in the cedar thickets, every widow who boasted a cow on a chicken run. They were numbered, all numbered. This spring the birds were thick in Potawatomi, and some of the lilacs bloomed early, but Cribben never looked at them, for they were not to be enumerated. He had not an ounce of fancy in him. Six days of this, and he had done the job except for the barons. Of all Potawatomi, Bear City District was the toughest nut for the special census, and the barons were the hard kernel of Bear City's hinterland. Who lives in the barrens, that sterile and gullied and scrub-veiled upland? Why? It's hard to say. A half-dozen scrawny families, perhaps more. Folk seldom seen, more seldom heard, even in Bear City. They have no money for the dissipations of a town, the barrens people. None of them, at least, except the Golsons. And no one ever knew a Golson to take a dollar out of his greasy old purse for anything but a sack of sugar or a bottle of rot-gut whiskey. The Golsons must have money, as money goes in Potawatomi, but it sticks to them. On Saturday afternoon, a week after his arrival in town, Cribben entered the post office, self-satisfied and muddy. Matt Heddle was there and loved the garageman. Love already lively from the morning libations. Started on the barrens this morning, Heddle. Cribben said ponderously. Easy as fallen off a log. Covered the Robinsons' place. And Henry's. Eight kids at the Robinsons, dirty as worms. He looked at his map. 
Tomorrow now. I begin with this place called uh, Baron's Mill. Not much of a road into it. It's right on Owens Creek. What do you know about Baron's Mill, Heddle? He pointed his heavy forefinger stiff at a spot on his map. Mr. Matt Heddle was a good-natured old man, but he did not like Cribbon. Potawatomi people said that Mr. Heddle was well-read, which in Potawatomi County means that a man has three reprints of Mary Corelli's novels and two of Hall Kane's, but they were not far wrong in Heddle's case. The appetite for knowledge clutched at him as it sometimes does a pathetic man past her prime, and his devotion to the better 19th century novelists, combining with some natural penetration, have made him shrewd enough. His good nature being unquenchable, he looked at Grim Cribben and thought he read in that intolerant face a waste of loneliness and doubt that Cribben never could confess to himself for terror of the desolation. He looked at Cribben and told him, Let it go, Mr. Cribben. They're an ignorant bunch, the Golsons. They own Baron's Mill. Let it go. It'll be knee-deep in mud up there. Look up the acreage in the county office and the assessment and let it go at that. You've done all the work anybody could ask. We don't let things go in the regional office, Cribben said with austerity. I've already looked in the county book, 520 acres of the Golson zone, but I want to know what Golson. Matt Heddle started to speak, hesitated, looked speculatively at Cribben and then said, It's Will Golson that pays the taxes. Love, who'd been leaning against the counter, a wise grin on his face, gave a whiskey chuckle and remarked abruptly, She was a witch and a bitch and a bitch and a witch. Ha! Gonna put her in the census. Dave Love, this isn't the elite, it's the post office, Matt Hittle said, civilly. Let's keep it decent in here. Yes. Will Golson pays the taxes, Cribben nodded, but the land's not in his name. The tax roll reads Mrs. Golson, just that. No Christian name. How do you people choose your county clerk? Mrs. Golson, old bitch Golson, old witch Golson, chanted Love. You gonna put her in a census? She's dead as a dodo. Will Golson's mother, maybe, or his grandmother. That's who's meant, Edel murmured. Nobody really knows the Golsons. They aren't folks you get to know. They're an ignorant bunch, good to keep clear of. She was old, old. I saw her laid out. Some of us went up there for the funeral. Only time we ever went inside that house. It was only decent to go up. Decent hell, said Love. We were scared not to go. That's the truth of it. Nobody with any brains rubs the Golsons the wrong way. Scared? Cribben sneered down at Love. God, yes, man, she was a damned witch. And the whole family's bats in the belfry. Old Mrs. Golson have a Christian name. Hell, who ever heard of a witch with a Christian name? You start your drinking too early in the day, Cribben said. Love snorted, grinned, and fiddled with the post office pen. What kind of county clerk do you have, Heddle, that doesn't take a dead woman's name off the books? Why, I suppose maybe the Golsons wanted it left on, Heddle sighed, placatingly. And there was talk. Nobody wants to fuss with the Golsons. Sleeping dogs, Mr. Cribben. If you really want to know, Love growled, she cursed the cows, for one thing. The cows are the people she didn't care for, and the neighbors that were too close. The Golsons don't like close neighbors. What are you giving me? Cribben went menacingly red at the idea of being made the butt of a joke. This was the one thing his humorless valor feared. You don't have to believe it, man, but the cows went dry all the same. 
and sometimes they died. And if that wasn't enough, the Golstons moved the fences and the boundary markers. They took over. They got land now that used to be four or five farms. Mrs. Heddle, having been listening, now came across the shop to say in her shy voice, They did move the post, Mr. Cribb and the Golstons, and the neighbours didn't move them back. They were frightened silly. It'll take more than a sick cow to scare me, Mrs. Heddle, Cribben told her, the flush fading from his cheeks. You people don't have any system up here. What's wrong with your schools that people swallow this stuff? How do you hire your teachers? Baron Mill is a place to put a chill into a preacher, Mr. Cribben, said Matt Heddle meditatively. There's a look to it. The mill itself is gone, but the big old house is there, seedy now, and the rest of the buildings. John Wendover, the lumberman, built it when this country was opened up, but the Golsons bought it after the timber went. Some people say the Golsons came from Missouri. I don't know. The stories, nobody knows the Golsons. They've got another farm down the creek. There's five Golson men nowadays, but I don't know how many women. Will Golson does the talking for them, and he talks as much as a clam. He'll talk to me, Cribben declared. Over Matt Heddle came a sensation of pity. Leaning across the counter, he put his hand on Cribben's. Few ever had done this, and Cribben startled, stepped back. Now listen, Mr. Cribben, friend. You're a man with spunk, and you know your business, but I'm old. I've been hereabouts a while. There are people that don't fit in anywhere, Mr. Cribben. Did you ever think about that? I mean, they won't live by your ways and mine. Some of them are too good, and some are too bad. Everybody's grown pretty much alike, nearly everybody in this age, and the ones that don't fit in are scarce, but they're still around. Some are queer, very queer. We can't just count them like so many 15-cent stamps. We can't change them, not soon. But they're shy, most of them. Let them alone. Let them alone and are likely to crawl in the holes out of the sun. Let them be. They don't signify. If you don't stir them up, the Goulsons are like that. They come under the law, same as anybody else, Cribben put in. Oh, the law was made for you and me and the folks we know, not for them, any more than it was made for the snakes. So long as they let the law alone, don't meddle, Mr. Cribben, don't meddle. They don't signify any more than a wasp's nest at the back of the orchard if you don't poke them. Old Heddle was very earnest. A witch of a bitch and a bitch of a witch, sang Love mordantly. Oh, Lord, how she hexed him. Why, there is Will Golson now, coming out of the elite, Mrs. Heddle whispered from the window. A greasy, burly man with tremendous eyebrows that had tufted points was walking from the bar with a bottle in either hip pocket. He was neither bearded nor shaven, and he was filthy. He turned towards a wagon hitched close by the post office. Handsome specimen, observed Cribben, chafing under all this admonition, the defiance in his lonely nature coming to a boil. We'll have a talk. He strode into the street, Matt Heddle anxiously behind him and Love sauntering in the rear. Golson, sensing them, swung round from tightening his horse's harness. Unquestionably, he was a rough customer, but that roused Cribben's spirit. Will Golson, called out Cribben in his artillery captain voice, I've got a few questions to ask you. A stare, and then Golson spat on the road. His words were labored, a heavy blur of speech, like a man wrestling with a tongue uncongenial to him. You the counter? That's right, Cribben told him. Who owns your farm, Golson? Another stare, longer, and a kind of slow, dismal grimace. 
Go to hell, said Golson. Leave us be. Something about this earth-stained, sweat-reeking figure skulking on the frontier of humanity sent a stir of revulsion through Cribben, and the consciousness of his inward shrinking set fire to his conceit, and he shot out one powerful arm to catch Golson by the front of his tattered overalls. By God, Golson, I'm coming out to your place tomorrow, and I'm going through it. I'll have a warrant, and I'll do my duty. So watch yourself. I hear you got a queer place at Baron's Mill, Golson. Look, I don't get it condemned for you. Cribben was white from fury and shouting like a sailor and shaking in his emotion. Even the dull lump of Golson's face lost its apathy before this rage, and Golson stood quiescent in the tall man's grip. Mr. Cribben, friend, Edel was saying. Cribben remembered where he was and what. He let go of Golson's clothes, but he put his drawn face into Golson's and repeated, Tomorrow. I'll be out tomorrow. Tomorrow's Sunday, was all Golson answered. I'll be there tomorrow. Sunday's no day for it, said Golson, almost plaintively. It was as if Cribben had stabbed through his hulk of flesh and rasped upon a moral sensibility. I'll be there, Cribben told him in grim triumph. Deliberately, Golson got into his wagon, took up the reins and paused, as if collecting his wits for a weighty effort. Don't, mister. It was a grunt. A man that fusses on Sunday, well, he deserves what he gets. And Golson drove off. What's wrong, Mr. Cribben? asked Heddle, startled. For Cribben had slipped down upon the bench outside the post office and was sucking in his breath convulsively. Here a nip, said Love in concern, thrusting a bottle at him. Cribben took a swallow of whiskey, sighed, and relaxed. He drew an envelope out of a pocket and swallowed a capsule with another mouthful of whiskey. Heart? asked Heddle. Yes, Cribben answered, as humbly as was in him. It never was, Dandy. I'm not supposed to get riled. With that heart, you don't want to be going up to Baron's Mill. No, you don't, said the postmaster, gravely. She's a witch, Cribben, Love was leaning over him. Hear me, eh? I say she is a witch. Quiet, Love, the postmaster told him. Or if you do go to the Baron's, Mr. Cribben, you'll take a couple of the sheriff's boys with you. Cribben had quite intended to ask for a deputy, but he'd be damned now if he wouldn't go alone. I'm driving to the judge for a search warrant, he answered, his chin up. That's all I'll take. Heddle walked with him to the boarding house where Cribben kept his automobile. He said nothing all the way, but when Cribben got behind the wheel, he leaned in at the window, his big, smooth, friendly old face intent. There's a lot of old-fashioned prejudice in Potawatomi, Mr. Cribben. But, you know, most men run their lives on prejudice. We've got to. We're not smart enough to do anything else. There's sure to be something behind a prejudice. I don't know all about the Golsons, but there's fact behind prejudice. Some things are best left alone. Here Cribben rolled up his window and shook his head and started the motor and rolled off. After all, there was no more he could have said, Matt Heddle reflected. Cribben would go to Baron's Mill, probably count everything in sight and bully-rag Will Golson, and come back puffed up like a turkey. Misty notions. He almost wished someone would put the fear of hellfire into the special interviewer, but this was only an old fangled backwater, and Cribben was a new fangled man. On Sunday morning, Cribben drove alone up the road towards the barrens. In his pockets were a set of forms and a warrant in case of need. Cribben left his gun at home, thinking the devil of a temper within him a greater hazard than any he was liable to encounter from the Golsons. 
past abandoned cabins and frame houses with the roofs fallen in, past the sluggish stream clogged with ancient logs, past mile on mile of straggling second-growth woodland, crib and road. It was empty country, not one-third so populous as it had been fifty years before, and he passed no one at this hour. Here in the region of the barrens, fence wire was unknown. Enormous stumps uprooted from the fields and dragged to the roadside or crowded one against the other to keep the cows out, their truncated roots pointing toward the empty sky. Most symbolic of the stump country, jagged and dead, these fences. But Cribben had no time for myth. By ten o'clock he was nursing his car over the remnants of a corduroy road which twists through long swamp. The stagnant water was a foot deep upon it this spring. But he went through it without mishap, only to find himself a little later snared in the wet ground between two treacherous sand hills. There was no traction for his rear wheels. Maddened, he made them spin until he had sunk his car to the axle, and then, cooling, he went forward on foot. Love's garage could pull out the automobile later. He would have to walk back to town or find a telephone somewhere when he was through with this business. He had promised to be at Barron's Mill that morning, and he would be there. Already he was within a mile of the farm. The damp track that had once been a lumber road could have led him, albeit circuitously, to the Golsons, but, consulting his map, Cribben saw that by walking through a stretch of hardwood, he could, with luck, save fifteen minutes tramping. So, up a gradual ascent he went, passing on his right the wreck of a little farmhouse with high gables not many years derelict. The Golsons don't like close neighbors. Oaks and maples and beeches, this wood with soggy leaves of many autumns underfoot, and sponge mushrooms springing up from them clamily white. Water from the trees dripped upon Cribben, streaking his short coat. It was a quiet wood, most quiet. The dying vestige of a path led through it. Terminating upon the crest of a ridge, the path took him through a stump fence of grand proportions. Beyond was pasture, cleared with a thoroughness exceptional in this country, and beyond the pasture the ground fell away to a swift creek, and then rose again to a sharp knoll, of which the shoulder faced him, and upon the knoll was the house of Baron's Mill, a quarter mile distant. All around the house stretched the Golson's fields, the work of years of fantastic labor. What power had driven these dull men to such feasts of agricultural vainglory? For it was a beautiful farm, every dangerous slope affectionately buttressed and contoured to guard it from the rains, every boulder hauled away to a pile at the bend of a stream, every potential weed jungle rooted out. The great square house, always severely simple, now gaunt in its blackened boards from which the paint had scaled away long since, surveyed the whole rolling farm. A low wing, doubtless containing kitchen and woodshed, was joined to the northern face of the old building, which seemed indefinably mutilated. Then Cribben realized how the house had been injured. It was nearly blind. Every window above the ground floor had been neatly boarded up, not covered over merely, but the frames taken out and planks fitted to fill the apertures. It was as if the house had fallen prisoner to the Golsons and sat, Samson-like in bound and blindfolded shame. Cribben started. No, not a stump. Someone crouching by the stump fence, leaning upon a broken root, and watching, not him, but the house. It was a girl, barefoot, a few yards away dressed in printed meal sacks, 
fifteen or sixteen years old, and thoroughly ugly, her hair a rat's nest. This was no country where a wild rose might bloom. She had not heard him. For all his ungainly ways, Cribben had spent a good deal of time in the open and could be meticulously quiet. He stole close up to the girl and said, in a tone he meant to be affable, Well now, ah, what a scream out of her. She had been watching the blind facade of Baron Mill's house with such a degree of intensity, a kind of cringing smirk on her lips, that Cribben's words must have come like the voice from the burning bush, and she whirled and shrieked, all sense gone out of her face, until she began to understand that it was only a stranger by her. Though Cribben was not a feeling man, this extremity of fright touched him almost with compassion, and he took the girl gently by the shoulder, saying, It's all right. Will you take me to the house? He made as if to lead her down the slope. At that, the tide of fright poured back into her heavy, golsome face, and she fought in his grasp and swore at him. Cribben, a vein of prudery ran through his nature, was badly shocked. It was hysterically vile cursing, nearly inarticulate, but compounded of every ancient rural obscenity, and she was very young. She pulled away and dodged into the dense wood. Nothing moved in these broad fields, no smoke rose from the kitchen, no chicken cackled in the yard. Overhead, a crow flapped, as much an alien as Cribben himself. Nothing more seemed to live about Baron's Mill. Were Will Golson crazy enough to be peering from one of the windows with a shotgun beside him, Cribben would make a target impossible to miss, and Cribben knew this. But no movement came from behind the blinds, and Cribben went round, unscathed, to the kitchen door. A pause and a glance told Cribben that the animals were gone, every one of them, to the last hen and the last cat, driven down to the lower farm to vex and to lay him, and it looked as if every Golson had gone with them. He knocked the scarred back door, only echoes. It was not locked, and having his warrant in his pocket, he entered. If Will Golson were keeping Mum inside, he'd rout him out. Four low rooms, kitchen, rough parlour, a couple of topsy-turvy bedrooms. This was the wing of the house, showing every sign of a hasty flight. A massive panelled door shut off the parlour from the square bulk of the older house, and its big key was in the lock. Well, it was worth a try. Cribben, unlocking the door, looked in. Black, frayed blinds drawn down over the windows, and the windows upstairs boarded, of course. Returning to the kitchen, he got a kerosene lamp, lit it, and went back to the darkened rooms. Fourteen-foot ceilings in these cold chambers and the remnants of Victorian prosperity in mildewed love seats and peeling gilt mirrors and dust. Dust. A damp place, wholly still. Cribben, telling his nerves to behave, plodded up the fine sweep of the solid stairs, the white plaster of the wall gleaming from his lamp. Dust, dust. A broad corridor, and three rooms of moderate size, their doors ajar, a naked bedstead in each, and at the head of the corridor a door that stuck. The stillness infecting him, Cribben pressed his weight cautiously upon the knob, so that the squeak of the hinges was faint when the door yielded. Holding the lamp above his head, he was in. Marble-top commode, washbowl holding a powder of grime, fantastic oaken wardrobe, and a tremendous Victorian rosewood bed, carved and scrolled, its towering head casting a shadow upon the sheets that covered the mattress. There were sheets, 
and they were humped with the shape of someone snuggled under them. Come on out, said Cribben, his throat dry. No one answered, and he ripped the covers back. He had a half second to stare before he dropped the lamp to its ruin. Old, old, how old she had been! Immensely fat. He could tell it in a frozen moment, but now the malign wrinkles hung in horrid, empty folds. How evil! And even yet, that drooping lip of command, that projecting jaw. He knew at last from what source had come the power that terrorist intended Baron's mill. The eyelids were drawn down, but this only was their time before the lamp smashed. Ah, why hadn't they buried her? For she was dead, long dead, many a season dead. All light gone, Cribben stood rigid, his fingers pressed distractedly against his thighs. To his brain, absurdly, came a forgotten picture out of his childhood, a coloured print in his King Arthur, Lancelot in the chapel of the dead wizard, with the knight lifting the corner of a shroud. This picture dropping away, Cribben told his unmoving self silently, but again and again, Old Mrs. Golson, old witch, old bitch, as if it were an incantation. Then he groped for the vanished door, but stumbled upon the wire guard of the broken lamp. In blackness, one's equilibrium trickles away, and Cribben felt his balance going, and knew to his horror that he was falling straight across that bed. He struck the sheets heavily and paused there in a paralysis of revulsion. Then it came to him that no one lay beneath him. Revulsion was swallowed in a compelling urgency, and Cribben slid his hands sweepingly along the covers in desperate hope of a mistake, but no. There was no form in the bed but his own. Crouching like a great clumsy dog, he hunched against the headboard while he blinked for any fillered drop of light show him what it would. He had left the door ajar, and through the doorway wavered the very dimmest of dim glows, the forlorn hope of the bright sun without. Now that Cribben's eyes had been a little time in the room, he could discern whatever was silhouetted against the doorway, the back of a chair, the edge of the door itself, the knob, and something moved into a silhouette, imperious nose pendulous lip, great jaw, so much before Cribben's heart made its last leaping protest. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? Today, Russell Kirk was born in 1918 in Plymouth, Michigan, to a relatively modest family. He died in 1994, but between birth and death those two times, he became arguably the foremost American theorist on conservatism of his time. He wrote a lot of books on political theory and was very influential in that field, but he also wrote ghost stories, and I have a copy of his collection, Ancestral Shadows. Kirk spent time in Scotland as a student at St Andrews, and with a name like Kirk, he clearly had some Scottish ancestry. A few of his stories are set in Kinross and Fife, and others in England. He loved tradition, and from his stories you see that he had respect for traditional spiritual values of Christianity. One of his first acclaimed stories was this one, Behind the Stumps, and that's why I've chosen to read it. The story has a lovely structure, it's a very well-written story. 
first we get it, we, we kind of zero in on it. We focus down from a big wide lens. If you think about it like a, a movie, a big wide lens that closes down. And we see, first of all, we get a description of Potawatomi County, what a backward place it is, something of the history. And there's, it's not unsympathetic, actually, for the poverty of the people there. We hear about how the government wants to tax the poor people of Potawatomi, and uh, we know that Kirk would not have approved of this. And even, but even then, he does mention how roads need to be maintained and uh, certain governmental functions. But he doesn't have a lot of sympathy. So the next thing is we zoom in and we look at the, the government's um, difficulties in taxing this place. And then we get down even narrower and we see Cribbin. And Cribbin is described in great detail. And one of the things that Kirk does really well is he really paints a picture of these characters. Uh, Cribbin is very well defined. We know a lot about, we don't know anything about his detail of his life particularly, but we know what kind of man he is. And that's really well done. Cribbin then sets off after we hear about his character and arrives at Bear City. And then there are other characters, not many of them, but there are other characters. There's uh, Mr. Heddle, the post office man, the postmaster, who, uh, again, is very well-drawn and generally sympathetic. He is the voice of reason, really, except that I think at one point he, he, uh, Kirk describes his love of learning as being pathetic for a man past his prime. And, uh, you know, that struck home with me, so I didn't like that. But he's generally okay, and love the drunk guy is another voice. And so we spend, they meet, and Cribbin um, talks about the difficulties he's got taxing these people, but he doesn't accept it. I mean, he's not, a, he's not a moaner. He doesn't do any whining. He's a guy who's going to sort it. And they tell him, hang on, just let sleeping dogs lie, and they give him some background. And all of this is setting up the character of the man. We know he's inflexible. We know he's not going to listen to reason. And they're warning him and warning him, and, and we can see it zooming in. And uh, the inevitable happens. He just won't leave it alone. And also, we get the setup of his heart about three quarters of the way in, and we know he's got a weak heart, and therefore that can, therefore when he does, when the end ends like it does, like you've just heard, we're going, ah, yeah, okay, saw that coming. Well, we didn't see it coming, but we, we weren't, it's not a surprise. And that is well written, really. I mean, it's a nice structure. The, the, the woman, the monster herself, is some kind of earth mother figure. She is, in psychological terms, in Jungian terms, the devouring mother but she's also the fruitful mother. There's ambivalence towards her. She devours her children. She's terrible. They're scared of her. But also she's very fruitful and she gives them energy because she's very fat, which is nurture. But also we've got the fields around the farm, which are tremendously productive in this otherwise barren area. It's called the Barrens. And she, through her energy, her family have transformed it. So she's both things. She's terrifying, but also she is fruitful. So anyway, so whether Kirk was aware of that, because he, he was very keen on, on those kind of conservative ideas um, of spirit. He wasn't a materialist, or clearly he wrote ghost stories. Um, he was a, a, a correspondent of T.S. Eliot, the poet, and T.S. Eliot was quite religious, really, in his poetry. Um, and he does, I don't know how much he was in, influenced by Carl Jung, but Jung himself was a fairly conservative character. Um, and without getting political, Jordan Peterson has been championing Jung 
I don't think Jordan Peterson is totally bad, by the way, but I probably lost a lot of listeners there. Uh, although I wouldn't describe myself as conservative either. So there you go. Anyway, that's that. The usual pleas. The links are in the, um, in, at the end of the notes. I would say something that we, I've been really busy because we've been doing live ghost story events. And I've been working with Jonathan Sharp of the Hartwood Institute. And uh, we've been doing uh, hauntological events. I've been telling stories. He's been playing the music. And another guy called Ben, Ben Brinnicum, has been fronting it all for us. So we've had a great time touring locally doing those uh, and selling books. Yeah. So this music is Jonathan's. It's the Hartwood Institute, and there's links to him in the, in the show notes. There's links to my Patreon. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Okay. Right. Good. Okay. Rambled enough. It's getting late. Good night. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? You tried. How to do the dead come back, mother? Didn't you? You What's the secret?
Isn't that something?